David Cullen Bain, the Dunedin man found guilty of murdering his family, appeared to go into a state of shock on hearing the guilty verdict. He started saying black hands, that they were taking them away, black hands. Do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. <laughs> I want to assure you, I did not kill my family. In murder investigations, motive can help discover the culprit. The why helps discover the who. The Bain killings were, or were supposed to be, ice-cold executions. The shooter had to be a person driven by something powerful, perhaps something that had simmered for a long time and then boiled over. What could have motivated Robin with David Bain to annihilate their family. I'm journalist Martin Van Bainen, and this is a podcast about the Bain family murders. On June the 20th, 1994, five members of the Bain family were shot in their home in Dunedin. Only the father, Robin Bain, who appeared to have shot the family and then himself, or his son David, the only survivor, could have been responsible. David was convicted of the murders in 1995, but acquitted after a second trial in 2009. Let's look first at possible motives for Robin. He was 58 and in fairly good health, perhaps a little underweight, and a post-mortem showed a slightly enlarged prostate, very common in men his age. He was principal of Tyree Beach School, a tiny school with only about 30 pupils, but was applying for other positions at bigger schools. Although he was adored by the children and their parents and very supportive of his staff, he was a shambles when it came to paperwork and his age was also against him in getting another position. He didn't look particularly well and some thought he appeared frail and weak. His personal hygiene was by all accounts awful and his marriage had clearly been in dire trouble for many years. Despite being cast out of the house to a caravan on the section, he still ate with the family when he was at home and on the Sunday night before his death, he and Margaret were still on good enough terms to watch television together. It's hard to know just how bad his relationship with Margaret was. From Margaret's diary, it's clear she constantly saw the devil in him and was forever finding fault. He seemed to tolerate her odd behaviour and beliefs, sometimes cooperating, but usually managing to slide off. He worked long hours and must have been worried about Margaret's mental health and her inability to keep the household running. Robin was proud and fond of his children. Arawa was a star student, had great potential as a teacher, and appeared to be socially adept. According to David, he and his father had a good relationship, although he admitted there was friction over issues like who had use of the chainsaw and Robin not being respectful of his work in the garden. Laniette was sufficiently close to her father that she chose to live with him in the schoolhouse at Tyree Beach. Although she had left home at 16, apparently because of some teenage misbehaviour and the oppressive religious atmosphere in the house, Robin stayed in touch with her. He paid her rent and cleared her account at the local dairy. She may have exasperated him, but he didn't appear to be giving up. He probably suspected she was working as a prostitute for extra money and was trying to get her away from former associates by having her live with him at Tyree. Stephen was only 14 and seemed fond of his father, who was still doing his best to be part of his life. 
One thing we know for sure about Robin is that he was generally serious, calm and non-violent. He had some difficult children at school, but he never seemed to raise his voice or lose his temper. The defence camp argued that by the time of the shootings, Robin had reached rock bottom. It claimed he was frustrated and downcast about his career, at his wit's end over Margaret, and overwhelmed with depression. It's true his last 12 months had been difficult. Paperwork was never his strong point, and he had been caught out by tomorrow's schools, a revolution in the New Zealand education system. He and his board of trustees needed to be writing policy documents, charters, and attending to a raft of new requirements. He had his own class to teach and also had to manage the school. In August 1993, the school had a visit from the school inspectorate. Joan Withers, a crusty former principal, was the main reviewer. Robin was sick the first day of the review, and Withers arrived early next day to find Robin sitting at a computer with two or three boys around him. Here she is at David's second trial. He was very intent on what he was doing, so I just sat down quietly at the back of the room and observed. And um, once the bell went, he took very little notice of that, and um, the children had come in and were arranging around the classroom, not concentrating on what they may be doing, but just, you know, talking to each other or running about or play, virtually playing. It was a very chaotic um, scene. She was appalled to find lesson plans not available, very little in the children's books, no records showing children's progress and no record of evaluation. Robin, as it turned out, kept these things mainly in his head. She approached him after school to seek his response about the shortcomings. He was very impassive about the whole thing and it, had, it was something that quite troubled me because his demeanour showed no emotion and I tried to lighten things a bit, but it was still this very bland, um, unemotional face that, and the responses were just robotic-like and, um, and just had no feeling with them. So it was most unusual. I believed um, him to be the most unusual person I'd ever met in my work and um, I described him to my colleague Pat as a walking cadaver because he seemed to be dead behind his eyes. It was just no flicker of light there. Predictably, her report painted a sorry picture of the school with a daunting list of things that needed to be done. It was hard work, but by early 1994, Robin and his board had corrected all but one of the deficiencies and the school was taken off the inspectorate's watch list. But as the year went on, other principals in the South Otago area felt Robin was deteriorating. The principal of Brighton School, Robin Davidson, who had taught with Robin about 30 years before, thought his colleague seemed to lose confidence near his death. He told David's second trial that Robin, on the occasions he saw him, looked worn out, bedraggled, and in need of a shower. Some thought he was suffering from serious depression. Cyril Wilden, an education psychologist for children with special needs, knew Margaret and Robin from earlier days and had liked Robin's sense of humour. He recalled his last dealings with Robin at David's second trial. My impression was that he had some sort of communication um, problem because it was, it was difficult to engage him and um, talk about the issues that I wanted to talk about. So I was concerned about his physical appearance, his, his demeanour. Some of the things he said just didn't 
it sound right and I was concerned about the, the state of the school that I was sort of picking up on it, it was rather chaotic and disorganised. I felt that he had some deep-seated emotional problems. My abiding um, impression was that he was suffering from some sort of reactive depression or situational depression. Um, I was looking to find some way to communicate to him about um, the stress he was under and all I can remember is whether he had been to a GP I mean, and I asked him whether he was getting any medical help and he was quite dismissive and, and uh, said yes he was as far as I can recall. Robin wasn't in fact getting any medical help and Wilden was not trained in detecting or treating depression in adults. Wilden also hadn't seen Robin since October of 1993. We have heard then how Robin seemed to be struggling both with his marriage and his career. But let's now look at what could have been the trigger. The defence said the spark was Laniette dropping a bombshell on her parents on the Sunday night before the shootings. She is supposed to have confronted her father and told her mother that from an early age Robin had molested her. Joe Caram, in a prologue to his book David and Goliath, now read by an actor, suggests it might have gone like this. What Laniette was telling them meant that finally she and her husband had to face up to the disastrous mess their lives were in. Laniette needed help. She had been abused for so long, nothing less than professional counselling could make any difference. She was a seriously disturbed young woman, carrying a shame she could no longer deal with. Margaret became angry. She turned on Robin. You are the devil. I've told you Belial has taken over your soul. Get out of this house. Despair, remorse, self-disgust. He hates himself. A calm comes over him, an overwhelming feeling of hatred. It's their fault. I never wanted to be like this. They made me go like I have. They've done it to me. Laniette had talked about the incest to a number of strangers, but never, it seems, to close friends or people close to the family. For instance, when she was living in Russell Street, she unloaded on the local dairy owner, who was a witness at David's second trial. Laniette came into the store one day, crying, very distressed and upset. I asked Laniette if she was alright, what was the matter, and um, Laniette expressed a lot of things about what was going on at home, the relationship with her mother, and that she was having an affair with her father. And um, how sure are you of saying that she was having an affair with her father? I was completely gobsmacked, I didn't know how to respond. Very clear. What were the, can you remember the exact words she used in relation to the affair? I'm having an affair with my father. What was your reaction to that? I didn't know how to respond. I didn't say anything. According to the defence, events were coming to a head. Laniette was getting ready to disclose to the family. She met a friend from the Russell Street flat a few days before the murders. The friend, whose name is suppressed, told David's second trial... Did you um, subsequently meet Laniette um, only a few days before the deaths? Yes, I did. Um, And where did you meet her? In the Octagon, in Dunedin. Right. And do you remember which day it was before the murders? It was Thursday. Thursday before the murders. The Thursday, according to my calendar, would make it the 16th of June. Yes. 
And um, how long did you talk with her on that occasion? Half an hour or so. All right. And what in particular did she tell you on that occasion? Uh, that she was working in the cafe museum, that she'd given up work as a sex worker, and that she was going home that weekend to blow the whistle on her being a sex worker. Right. And anything else was she going to disclose? And that she'd been having an incestuous relationship with her father. And when had she previously told you about that? When we were living in Russell Street together. What did she say about that incestuous relationship? Just that um, she'd been having sex with her father. Do you know whether that was just a one-off or whether it had been going on for any time, did she say? She never really specified. But Prosecutor Cameron Mander, now a High Court judge, got the witness to highlight a puzzle if Laniette wanted to avoid her father. Were you aware that she went out um, and stayed with her father and um, a young man out at um, Tyre? Not at the time, no. You became aware of that later? Yes, after the murders. Were you surprised about that? I was very surprised. And why were you surprised? Because I knew that she didn't want to be around her father. That's what she said to you? Yes. It's indeed surprising that Laniette would move in with a father who was molesting her and about whom she was making very damaging allegations. Maybe Laniette was going to disclose something over the weekend, perhaps in a move to stop Dean Cottle blackmailing her. Whether Laniette was going to disclose that some sort of pre-arranged formal meeting is unclear. She doesn't appear to have told anyone that she had arranged such a meeting. In fact, it's David who seems to have called a family meeting for the weekend. Laniette's friend from Russell Street, another friend who boarded with her and Robin in the schoolhouse, and David's aunt Jan Clark all gave evidence at David's second trial that suggested David had called the meeting. In addition, Joanne Dryden, who taught Laniette at Bayfield High School, met Laniette on the street on the day before the shootings, as she recalled at David's second trial. So, um, when she stopped to talk to you, what did she talk about? We chatted about the usual things, about, um, you know, what she was up to, and I can't even remember those details from way back then, but we did chat, but it was clear, clear to me that she was very agitated. And, and what makes you say agitated in what way? What was it about her? what she said or did or behaved? Um, her body language, what she was saying, and um, her voice and um, her facial expressions. And um, she hugged me. She gave me a hug. Um, yeah. Did she say what she was doing that evening? She said that she was going to work, and after work, um, David was going to collect her and take her home for a family meeting which she said she felt scared about and um, she didn't want to go. Did she say who had organised the family meeting? I don't know. <coughs> Did she say how she found out about the family meeting? Who told her about it? I don't remember that. 
Um, did she say where he was going to pick her up from? No, she didn't tell me where she was going to pick where he was picking her up from. Did you know where she was living at that time? She was living in a flat, mm-hmm. evidently. Now she, um, but whether she told me that or whether I heard, I can't be sure. The specific details I remember are the um, her demeanour saying that she was going to a meeting, David was picking her up, and she had to go. She didn't want to go, and she was scared. Did she say why she didn't want to go? No, she didn't. Or did she say what she was scared of or about? She said she was scared of David. Um, Was that the last you saw of her? That was the last I saw of her. The defence said that even if the incest allegations weren't true... Laniet had cast her toxic allegations far and wide, and the mere prospect of being accused would have exacerbated Robin's depression, instability, and sense of hopelessness. Today on Newsable, we go inside the courtroom where Erin Patterson pleaded not guilty to murder charges related to that infamous Beef Wellington lunch. Plus, why it's a good time to be a first home buyer and the diss battle between Kendrick Lamar and Drake. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead... The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, Subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. We have all heard about these sad, angry, deranged men who one day, out of the blue, lose the plot and start shooting. But many things about Robin don't fit that scenario. He was a stoic. His favourite song was Old Man River, a song about enduring hardship. He had lived with the ructions in his marriage and Margaret's bizarre beliefs since their time in P&G. The marital breakdown was for Robin a cross he had to bear. He had never shown any violent tendencies and had not lost his Christian faith. He was still praying, still working, still earning, still proud, still doing things with his children, and still, apparently, interested in life. Another link is also missing. Prosecutor Karen Raftery posed the question in his closing address to the second trial. From what you do know about Robin, if he had gone to the stage where he wanted to commit suicide, from the quiet, gentle man that you know him to be, you might just be able to imagine a scenario whereby he said, well, even though it's flimsy, I'll buy into the idea of incest and depression. He might want to go away quietly take his own life. But for him to be translated from a suicide into a homicidal maniac. In addition, Robin's doctor had no record of seeing Robin for depression, and David told the police no one in the family was on medication for the illness. No antidepressants were found in the house 
or in Robin's caravan. The defence scenario, that a demented Robin shot the family, therefore has a number of problems. But a more obvious hurdle is this. The murders were not the work of a crazed gunman. Someone who had suddenly snapped, couldn't sleep, was angry and wanting to kill. The gunman acted more like an assassin than someone who had lost their mind. And one vital person was spared. In his crazed state, why would Robin spare David? the son who had given him grief and challenged his authority and place in the family. So if we look at Robin, he seems a very unlikely killer. If Lani had had accused him in front of her mother on the Sunday night, he might have decided to take his own life. But why kill the rest of the family and not David? Of course, Laniette's allegations may have prompted an entirely irrational response, leading Robin to get up on that Monday morning in 1994 and shoot the family, and then himself. If Robin didn't seem to have a killer personality, the same could also be said about David. In many respects, David was a pleasant, kind, normal young man with a bright future. Much has been made of David's nerdiness, but he was in fact a good swimmer, athlete, singer and dancer. One factor the defence could at least rely on was that David had been pronounced sane after the shootings, by two psychiatrists. The inability of the prosecution to show David had a clear motive, or even that he was the type of person who could kill in a cold-blooded and calculated way, gave the Crown a major headache and delivered the defence camp one of its strongest arguments. As David sat in court in his second trial, a bald, respectful, polite man in a dark suit, the jury must have thought, could this man really be a mass murderer? When David's 37th birthday occurred during the trial, the jury even wanted to send him a birthday card. Prosecutor Kieran Raftery tried valiantly to deal with the problem of David just not seeming the type. In his closing address to the second trial, he said, Neither Robin nor David are natural-born killers. No one is (coughs) suggesting that at all. But something went wrong in the house that morning to lead someone to kill We may never know what it was, what the trigger was for that event. But as long as you know what did happen and who did it, you have answered the questions that you as a jury are asked by the criminal justice system. You are never asked by the criminal justice system, (coughs) why did it happen? And those questions may go on being debated long after this trial has finished. Of course, nothing really needed to have gone wrong at all. Something had been going wrong for some time, and the shooter may have stewed over a plan for months. But the Crown's struggle with motive meant David's lawyer, Michael Reed QC, could tell the jury in the second trial that there wasn't a tittle of evidence that David was a homicidal maniac. This is Reed in his closing address, and we apologise for the audio quality. You don't have to be a psychopath to do what Robin did. To do what Robin did requires a final snapping of whatever, and I'll come to that. But remember, on the Sunday afternoon, before these deaths in the early hours of the Monday, Sunday, probably around about six, we don't know. David was happy, jovial, 
in that rehearsal for Oedipus Rex, Rex, sorry, Oedipus Rex, heard the evidence from the person running it, heard the evidence of the friends around him. He is a nice man. And a man, as David told Justice Binney in 2012, who was getting on with his own life and somewhat divorced from what was happening in the family. He was just doing his own thing and just having a ball, he told the judge. In March 2012, when David and Joe Caram were the star attractions at a conference in Perth on wrongful convictions, David made these comments, now read by an actor. Due to my attention focused on my own life and all the fantastic things I was getting involved in, I was unaware of the malevolent undercurrents that were happening in my own family. What David told the conference doesn't quite marry up with what David told police after the shootings. In the first two interviews, he was able to give police a lot of details about the family. And he gave these answers, now read by an actor. He and I had had constant, not battles, pushing and pulling over the chainsaw. He was always taking it down there and I need it for the work to do. Last night, I said I wanted the chainsaw. I said it quite firmly. He tried to beat me down. He was asserting his authority or his right to rule the roost. It's always been like that. Arawa was a lot stronger than I towards him. She was firmer with him. She is stronger in her beliefs. She was able to deal with him without the feelings of guilt he brings out with me. Stephen knows there is tension between mum and dad, but wouldn't know that mum had told him to leave the family group and wanted a separation, but wouldn't know the extent. He wouldn't know the pain that mum felt. She wanted him out of our lives, not living there anymore. It was a minor victory that he was away four days a week, and I think she wanted him out all the time. Stephen's relationship with Dad was Stephen needed a father figure, but Dad would treat Stephen as my son, his progeny, and try to involve him with what Dad was doing. It made Stephen feel oppressed and being angry with Dad because of the way Dad would do it. By the time Laniette arrived, she was starting to realise that her life was for his gratification. She felt oppressed by him. So we can see these are hardly the words of someone unaware of the undercurrents in his family life. And if David was having fun and getting on with his own life, how come he was still involved with his mother in the new house dream? So let's take stock of David in March 1994 when he turned 22. He was a geeky, slightly odd young man who had ambitions to be a famous singer, leading man and university graduate. High school had not been a great success academically and the three years after had not exactly been studded with achievements either. But despite his shortcomings, he had a strong sense of self-belief. One prominent Otago man who does not want his name used and who knew the Bain family well told me that David had a different grasp on reality, almost delusions of grandeur. David had wanted to be a vet, but in 1991 he had failed all his papers at university. He dropped out of his running club, and after his failure at university, he spent two years on the dole working with his mother in the garden and helping in the house despite being offered a job by his uncle, who ran an employment agency. Things appeared to be looking up in 1994. He was doing some papers at Otago University, but still on the dole. Exams were coming up. A fellow student, Kelly Gillen, who was in the same class as David at Bayfield High School, said David was struggling with the academic side of the music paper and had asked him to tutor him. 
David had not done music at school, so was always going to find the music paper difficult. David was active in music productions and had started taking out a young woman, but months had gone on and the relationship hadn't progressed to even a kiss. She wasn't the one, he said. The fun-loving, hard-working, popular image the defence worked hard to cultivate also overlooked a number of things. David was enthralled to his mother, who was clearly mentally ill. He was committed to turning 65 Every Street into some sort of refuge where he and his mother would rule the roost. There was no place for his father, and he and his mother would have adjoining rooms. He lived in a filthy, cluttered house with a mother who saw evil and devils everywhere, including in her own family. But to him, she was a confidant and only a bit nutty. From witnesses comes a very strong suggestion David was trying to control his siblings and wrest control of the family from his father. Laniette and Arawa appear to have found him creepy and scary. David also had a number of unusual experiences before the shootings. He became disturbed at a choir class, as John Mowat reported at the second trial. I just want to ask you about one instant during one such choral workshop. Um, was there an occasion when he did something rather unusual that stuck in your mind? Uh, yes, there was one instance. I remember a choral workshop uh, approximately two weeks before the Bain murders. Uh, where I was sitting directly behind David. Uh, we were seated as a choir. Uh, there were people either side of David, in front of him and behind him. I was directly behind. I had people either side of me. And what happened? Uh, in this instance, uh, I, we were singing and I observed that David was becoming increasingly agitated and started looking from side to side. Uh, at one point, he suddenly stood up, turned around, and proceeded to climb over me. As he did so, he kicked me in the left shoulder. Uh, he went to the back of the room and sat alone uh, to, and appeared to be distressed. And when you say a bit distressed, how did you form that impression? What was he doing or saying? Or... Well, he was um, he was uh, sitting forward with his hands clenched together, and it was almost like he was pacifying himself, rocking himself. Yeah. You're rocking it slightly forward and backwards yourself, just slightly. yes. Is that right. the motion he was doing? Yes. Yeah. Also, only just before the shootings. David crashed a powerful motorbike being sold by a local motorcycle dealer. David took the bike for a spin and wrote it off. He escaped without a scratch, but it could have been much more serious. The dealer was struck by how little emotion David showed. In the same week, David got his tattoo, which we will cover in more detail later. And if David was off in his own world, unaware what was happening in the family, why would his mother have found it necessary to say this just before the shootings. As David's aunt, Jan Clark, told David's second trial... She had had to speak to David about the way that he was treating his uh, sisters and brother. She said that it was inappropriate, that it wasn't his place 
to tell them what they could or could not do, that they had a father and it was his place, not his. Subsequently, or after the 20th of June, did you talk to the accused about that problem? Yes, I did. I'm, I'm not sure which of us brought it up, but we talked a lot about the family, obviously, and David, um, yes, he endorsed that comment. He said that he um, felt he had been taking on too much responsibility and that um, I felt that he should be treating his sisters and brothers as a friend rather than taking on that additional role. Was it usual or unusual for Margaret to, to uh, make any negative comments about the children or the family? Oh, very unusual for Margaret to make such a comment. She only ever spoke um, positively um, about her children. If David was having a lot of fun and doing many fantastic things, he was also having some strange experiences to do with deja vu and spacing out, as he called it. On Saturday, June the 11th, only nine days before the shootings, David and his girlfriend went with two friends to a Dunedin Sinfonia concert. At the end of the second half, everyone started clapping, but his girlfriend noticed David didn't do anything. She told David's second trial. In the second half of the concert, um, it was a world premiere of a symphony by Anthony Ritchie, and um, somewhere towards the end, uh, well, sorry, David took off his glasses and somewhere towards the end of the performance he was very still and staring straight ahead. Um, I was a bit aware that he wasn't sort of aware of what was going on around. And um, when it finished, obviously, because it was the end, it was everyone clapped and it was, there was a lot of noise and he didn't react to that. And um, so I elbowed him, and he nothing happened. And I may, sorry, I elbowed him. Nothing happened. And then I, I sort of jabbed him and said, David, you know. And he sort of came to. I said, I, I said I don't know what happened there. I, I wanted to make light of it. Did he say what had happened? No. Some have suggested David was faking the trance perhaps with an eye on later being able to claim he had no knowledge of the shootings due to being in a sleepwalking state at the time. This would have given him a possible defence to any murder charges. Then in the week before the shootings, he decided to have a heart-to-heart with his girlfriend's friend, ending the conversation by saying he had a premonition of something horrible happening. So in the weeks before the shootings, David is having experiences of deja vu, is going into trance-like states, and is having premonitions. In researching this series, I spoke with an old friend of the Bain family, who said she received a visit from Margaret in the week before the shootings. Margaret told her, she says, that she had to keep an eye on David because he was having hallucinations. We have seen then that some abnormal things were occurring in David's life. Then we have the strange matter of the black hands, and David's various comments after the shootings about how he felt black hands were coming to get him and the family. This is David's explanation from his interview with Justice Binney in 2012. What's all this about uh, black hands? Um, 
I don't know why I referred to it as black ones. Um, the image that still comes to mind now. <coughs> I, can only, I can only say that the, the reason I used black hands at the time was because that what was kind of what it looked like. The imagery that comes to mind now is just a, um, essentially fingers of dark you know, coming in from all you know 360 degrees over the centre of my vision of my family. So black hands <coughs> really just refers to the notion of darkness closing in rather yeah, than... From the outside. Yeah. Tunnel vision. Or, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know why I call it black hands. This was a family in which the supernatural was very real. Margaret believed in demons and evil spirits and David said Laniat could see black auras around people. Margaret thought she could feel the devil in Robin, in the house, in food, and sometimes even in David. Nothing suggests David laughed this off as kooky behaviour by his dramatic family. The phrase black hands has many connotations to occult practices and goes with such occult terms as sorcery, black magic and black eyes. It's also worth noting David's demeanour as he related the Black Hands experience to his aunt, as we heard in the last episode. Remember the closed eyes, the weird speech and spitting? Through the Catholic Church, I got in touch with a couple who counsel and exercise people who think they are possessed by an evil spirit. They didn't want to be named or identified in any way, but the woman said, We've had plenty of experience of the spitting and the, the words and the voices change and that sort of thing, yeah. The problem that we uh, have is always distinguishing between demonic possession and mental illness. It's always a big question. And we usually go down the track of the mental illness, get people to have medical checkups and things before we consider the demonic side. Because we have, you have to be sensible in this whole area. Black hands could also be a reference to the black hands David would get when delivering newspapers. The ink would rub off and cover the skin. None of this shows David as the killer of his family, any more than Robin's difficult circumstances at the time of the murders prove he was the shooter. But the material does show, in my view, that David has tried to sell us a fiction. The fiction that he had a normal, loving and somewhat distant relationship with his family, when in truth, at the time of the shootings, the relationships had quite another aspect. You can't blame David for wanting to emphasise the positive aspects of his life, but he goes much further than gilding the lily. The facts are that around the time of the shootings, his younger sister was a prostitute, his brother Stephen was in trouble with the police, his mother was a toxic influence, his father was paralysed and floundering, and his home was a shambles. Strangely, these facts don't seem to register in David's picture of his family. When he talked about his family at his first trial in 1995, he spoke about the family as though it was virtually perfect. Even in 2012, when he spoke to the Innocence Conference in Perth, he stuck to the picture of a wonderful and close family. Perhaps David is frightened that if people realise what his family life was really like, the circumstances he lived in, the responsibility he felt for the family, and the control he was trying to exert, it might be all too understandable why this meek, mild chap 
could in his darkest moment kill the very family he professed to love. If David was the killer, there are endless possibilities why he would want to shoot his family. Unfortunately, speculation leads to a dead end. An analysis of possible motives fails to exclude either Robin or David. That takes us back to the hard evidence. In the next episode, we'll look at the main physical clues in the case and where they lead us. I'm Martin Van Bainen. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a joint stuff in Tandem Studios production. Written and presented by Martin Van Bainen. Audio engineered and co-produced by Brett Robertson. And produced by Dave Dunlay and Kamala Heyman.